Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. It's great to be with you, Adam. Thanks for joining us. We Thank appreciate it. Thank you for it. having me. So uh, there's one way of looking at this. You're in Montana. You're doing your job. You're trying to get Medicaid expansion past the finish line, uh, a major priority for Democrats. Uh, you get into the race a little late, and the DNC criteria just so happened to not work out in your favor. Can you give us a PG version of your phone calls with <laughs> Chairman Perez uh, <laughs> as to what you were saying when that happened to you? Yeah, my PG version would be I'm very disappointed because even at the start they said, here are all these entities like ABC News that we'd count the polling from. And one of them that they discounted at the end of poll that I'd already qualified for. And I was frustrated in as much as that, as you noted, so I had a job to do. Governor of the state, our legislature meets 90 days every two years. And in the face of tobacco companies spending $26 million to kill Medicaid reauthorization by ballot initiative, I had to get that through. I had to get an infrastructure bill through. I had to freeze college tuition. Um, and there ought to be a premium for that. But if I had to choose between you know, chasing 100,000 donors or actually providing 100,000 people health care, saving that health care, it's the easiest choice I'd ever make. There's a flip side to this, too. Uh, you looked at this field, an epic field of Democrats, and thought, well, there's a path for me here to get to the White House. Why run for president versus perhaps trying to run for Senate? Uh, something a lot of Democrats wanted you to sure. do. You turn your popularity into that, in that state into a seat in the Senate. In yeah. I mean, I chose to run for president because we not only have to beat Donald Trump, but we got to get both this economy and this representative democracy working for us again. You know what I I'm the only one in the field that actually won a Trump state. Donald Trump took Montana by 20. I won by four in 2016. If we can't win back some of the places that we lost in 2016, in addition to bringing out our base, we're not going to win this election. Um, I've shown even in great, greatly divided times that government can work. My legislature is 60% Republican. Yet we've been able to do things like expand health care, get dark money out of our elections. And I also think I represent, you know, I'm outside of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. at times has become a place where talking about issues is the replacement for doing it. I've been able to get things done along the way. So I think I can not only win, but bridge some of the divides to get government working, um, have great respect for the Senate, and I know that we're going to have a good candidate for Montana Senate, or for the U.S. Senate in 2020, and I'll do everything I can to make sure that her or him gets elected. You mentioned this phenomenon. You, you won in a red state that voted overwhelmingly for Trump. So who are these trump Bullock voters? Yeah, and look, 25 to 30 percent my voters also voted for Donald Trump. And I think that we got to recognize a number of things. Like for a whole lot of folks, you know, over 40% of Americans right now, if they had an emergency and needed 400 bucks, car breaks down or health care, they wouldn't have it. Or if you look at, you know, when I was growing up in the early 70s, 90% of 30-year-olds were doing better than their parents were at age 30. Today, it's only half. So a lot of folks, the economy's not working that well for them. I think the folks that voted for me, first of all, I show up. I don't have the luxury in Montana of just going to those pockets of blue and getting them out. I go all across the state, and I try to listen as much as I talk. I don't compromise my values, but they know I'm going to be fighting for their best interests, even if at the end of the day that they meet disagree with me on some of my policy positions. 
Let's talk a little bit about foreign policy right now. What would you do if you're in the Oval Office behind that Resolute desk to try and bring Iran back from the brink? Well, and let's actually recognize that we helped bring Iran to that brink. Um, when this administration pulled out of the JCPOA, where Iran said, we will allow nuclear inspectors in. We're not going to take any steps toward short-range or long-range nuclear weapons. Uh, this is, in part, the chaos of his own creation. This president's kind of taken this idea of America first to America alone. So what I would do is certainly, you know, we can't give Iran any license to cause troubles, but we also have to say that we can't do this alone. We've got to work with our allies and at times our adversaries through diplomatic ways. And that's what we had until fairly recently. Even under that agreement, they were just months away from creating a nuclear weapon, though. But they had stopped, and they also had agreed to allowing international inspectors in. So, you know, they've been saying for quite a while now, hey, we're really telling you, if we can't figure out a way to actually keep our economy going, uh, we're going to restart our efforts. So this was one where they had stopped, and we're allowing inspectors in. Um, I don't think that the approach of just saying, we're going to throw out everything from the past, uh, has really helped us too much, but it also shows you, know, you know, this administration in some ways, I mean, sort of the misstatements and some of the lies, it's hard for people to really trust and understand what's real and what's not out of this current crisis that we're now seeing. You know, literally last or a couple days ago from this airing when, oh, well, we're actually going to start sending in folks. No, we're not. People don't know what to believe coming out of Washington, D.C. right now, and I think people deserve a lot better. One of your competitors in this race is calling for the federal licensing of firearms. Are you on board with an idea like that? I'm not. Um, I think that we need to turn around and make uh, gun safety a public health issue, not necessarily a political issue. And what we've seen over the years is, you know, the NRA, when I was growing up, was a hunting and gun safety organization. Now it's nothing more than a political issue organization. I'm tired of lowering flags for mass shootings. I'm tired of the fact that my son, when he went to a new school this year, the middle school, at the end of the week, he's like, I asked, what did you learn? He goes, I know, now know where to go in case there's an active shooter. But there are steps that you could take without taking away people's guns or licensing their guns. Things like universal background checks. Even the majority of Republican gun owners would agree that this would be a good idea. Red flag laws, domestic violence, opportunities. If we could look at it as a health issue, not a political issue, I think that we could take good steps forward. That's uh, Senator Booker's idea for the licensing there. The first big fight of the Democratic primary broke out between Senator Booker and former Vice President Biden over some remarks that Vice President Biden made about working in the past with these southern segregationist senators. Some called that insensitive. Where do you stand on this? Biden's asking for apology. Booker's asking for an apology. Do you have an opinion here? Who should apologize? I don't. You, you know, at the end of the day, this is up to voters to sift through it all. And sort of the food fights of the day, I'm not sure help us all that much along the way. Uh, but we do have to recognize that everybody's voice needs to be heard. And there are times that, look, we ought to be able to find ways to get Washington, D.C. to work, but not sure always holding up some of the individuals that the vice president held up is the best way to show that we could make Washington work. Yeah, those Dixiecrat senators are long gone, but part of the conversation that's going on right now in this race is about reparations. 
What about the idea of the Democratic Party paying reparations based on that membership it had, not just in the Senate, but elsewhere, and it was so intimately involved in suppressing black people's freedoms? Well, I think the idea of reparations is recognizing that there's been historical injustices and past wrongs and taking steps to remedy those wrongs. And certainly know that the promise of this country hasn't been extended to everyone. And there are both historical and to to date contemporary issues that are holding individuals back. So I think the best way to actually approach this is we know there are healthcare disparities between African Americans and whites. Let's actually address those healthcare disparities and say, how did we get there? You know, if, if you're a black family in America, you're making about 58 cents on the dollar for the average white family. Economic issues, housing issues, address it in that way from the perspective of saying what are the historical injustices that still bleed into today and how can government be a constructive partner in addressing them. Another big issue right now, climate change. What are you doing in Montana to address the issue of climate change? You know, we've, even in my six years, we've doubled the wind, we've quadrupled the solar. I'm the chair of the governors nationally of Wind and Solar Coalition. We've built additional opportunities as we look to where we can go with in the region with renewable energy. But we have to take action on climate change. We were talking for this. I had 1.3 million acres burned two years ago. We need to take immediate steps and durable steps. The IPCC says we have to be carbon neutral by 2050. I think we could get there a lot sooner. Um, rejoining Paris and actually paying our commitments in there. Not even the auto industry was looking for these fuel efficiency standards to be rolled back. Investing in the technology and opportunities to start bringing down our greenhouse gas immediately and make a long-term plan, and I think we can do more. You talk about a carbon-free future. Coal isn't everything in Montana, but it is something. How do you protect the workers that you have who work in that industry in your own state? And I think that's essential. Look, right now financial markets are even making coal-fired generation uh, much less profitable. And plants are closing. Another one was just announced that it was going to be closed in Montana at the end of this year. But even the scientists, like the IPCC says, you can't just shut these off immediately. So we have to figure out both ways to counterbalance some of the greenhouse effects of that, and that's through things like renewables. It's adding my wind and solar. But an important lesson along the way for, I think, Democrats, but for all Americans, too, is that you can't leave those communities behind. I mean, I've got folks that have spent their whole life powering America. And as transitions occur, we've got to figure out how that they can have as good a job as their next job as the one that they've had in the past for us. Is New Hampshire part of your pathway to victory in getting to the White House? I'm happy, happy to be here in New Hampshire. It absolutely is. You know, it's always been traditionally the early states sort of shift out this big field into this much smaller field. I think that though we're a little bit larger geographically than New Hampshire, uh, I think you could fit 15 New Hampshire's <laughs> in the state of Montana. Uh, sort of the folks of sometimes a little bit of skepticism of government. You know, kind of not a libertarian that really cares about their neighbor, that wants to make sure to be able to hold government accountable. There's some of the values of folks in New Hampshire that are a lot like those in Montana. All right, Governor Bullock, thanks for Sure, appreciate you having me here. We'll see you on the trail. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR. 
but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. It appears Bill Weld will have the job of mounting a Republican challenge to President Donald Trump all to himself, a task that is looking increasingly more difficult as the president officially launches his 2020 campaign. Joining us this morning is the former governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. Thanks Thank for joining you, us, Adam. Governor. Always a pleasure. Appreciate you having, having you here. So uh, when you first began your exploratory committee, there was a chance that the president could be significantly weakened politically by this time or by the end of the summer, either through the Mueller investigation or a number of other scenarios. None of that's really come to pass. So does that move the goalposts at all for you? Well, I would uh, think that the Mueller report with the 10 examples of obstruction of justice uh, did weaken the president. And, uh, you know, two weeks ago, 1,000 former federal prosecutors said, yeah, that's obstruction of justice. It's a criminal offense and it's not even a close call. Uh, and I think that's uh, relevant to the president's standing. It's certainly relevant to whether the House decides to at least launch an impeachment inquiry to the president. So. Uh, from where I sit, the president's position, legal position, is deteriorating, not improving. And yet his political position, mm -hmm. because the Democrats aren't going to do anything about that legal position, seems to be in decent shape. Well, I, I think the Democrats may very well do something on the impeachment front about the uh, legal situation. I think the president's uh, uh, political standing is very strong with the Republican state committees throughout the country. And the reason why is not far to seek. Those are the Trump organizations in each of the 50 states. So my strategy is not to go try and charm them because they're dug in for Trump. They're not going anywhere. Uh, my strategy is to enlarge the electorate, get more millennials, uh, women voting. I think the recent uh, abortion statutes out of the South are outrageous. It's, uh, it's really a, a, it's an attack on gender equality. I think uh, the president's policies are very unfair to millennials. The, uh, the deficit, you know, $30 trillion. You and I aren't going to pay for that, or maybe you are. The, the millennials are going to pay for that, not, not uh, Mr. Trump's generation. And uh, the idea that climate change is a hoax, who's going to pay the piper for that? The millennials, when the po polar ice cap melts and all our seacoasts are rearranged. And I think the president has his head in the sand on the great issues of the day, frankly, foreign policy and uh, environmental. Circling back to the Mueller report one last time, you know the attorney general personally. When he released his summary, you said you trusted him. Do you still trust him? No, I, I think uh, Bill Barr has uh, somehow eddied over to the side where he's the president's political defender. I spent much of my legal career trying to keep politics out of law enforcement. And Bill Barr and Donald Trump are trying to put politics squarely in the middle of law enforcement. It goes back to Jim Comey and I want loyalty. Uh, that's not proper in a law enforcement context, and in the fullness of time, I'm going to make that tail stick. <laughs> it's a tricky situation, though. You can't really say, as a, a rule of law kind of guy, you can't say, I'm going to prosecute the president when he's out of office because you wouldn't want to influence your own Justice Department, correct? No, I mean, uh, the Constitution makes it very plain that the president can be prosecuted when out of office. Uh, if I'd had the... But you wouldn't uh, be directing your AG to do that. Well, on the contrary, if I'd had the case as Bob Mueller, I would have I would have charged the president in a sealed indictment. And, uh, you know, that takes care of uh, interference with his duties because it's it's under seal. 
but uh, the uh, the evidence was all there. It's only Bill Barr who says you can't even have a sealed indictment against a, a sitting president. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of theories, like you can't indict the president unless he committed the underlying offense. That would mean you couldn't proceed against Nixon unless he was in the basement of the Watergate Hotel with G. Gordon Liddy and uh, Mr. Hunt. That's not the law. Let's move to Iran. Do you trust the president to be able to de-escalate the tensions right now with Tehran? I absolutely don't. I think the president is hugely over his head uh, in the whole foreign policy arena. Uh, and I think he's frankly ignorant. Uh, it was a colossal mistake for him to rip up the Iran deal in the first place. I'm not sure he realized that all of our European allies are parties to that uh, agreement. He kind of acted as though he thought it was just uh, him and and uh, Tehran. And now he says, well, what we'll do is we'll turn the sanctions ever higher and that'll make the Revolutionary Guard be nicer and uh, stop all their bad, uh, bad stuff with Hezbollah, etc. That's not the real world. It's only going to uh, improve the hand of the hardliners in Tehran and make things worse. Uh, I think the president has a very unrealistic view of how to deal with Iran. And I say the same of my old friend John Bolton, who is the president's national security advisor, who seems absolutely dead set on either goading Tehran into war or sending boots on the ground for regime change, exactly what I think American policy should not be. Well, I'll toss up a jump ball for you here. This is a long-term adversary of the United States. They're going to continue to do what they've done, which is antagonize and sort of work around the margins. And they're going to eventually get a nuclear weapon. So why not attack them and end it now? <laughs> the people in the street in Iran want to tilt to the West. And what that agreement did, for good or ill, it gave us 10 years with no more march by Tehran towards a nuclear weapon, as you point out. That's not a bad deal. So we would just persist in this sort of status quo where the Revolutionary Guard and the well, mullahs no, I think and we should do everything we can to undermine the position of uh, the Revolutionary Guard because they do not represent the people. The people in the street do not want a continuation of the policies of Ahmadinejad, who is the strongest, uh, uh, you know, let's have war uh, uh, prime minister that uh, Iran has uh, had. Uh, but I think that the, the current policy of goading them and baiting them and taunting them and then pretending that we're restrained because we didn't launch uh, a three-part strike because an unmanned drone was uh, shot down, that's just theater. And I think uh, just as a lot of the president's domestic policy, you know, climate change is a hoax, free press is the enemy of the people, it's just rhetoric. I think the same is true of uh, when he gets into international affairs, although then he's even more over his head. Let's shift to the southern border right now. Uh, tremendous numbers of migrants coming to the border. It's a humanitarian crisis. So let's set aside the ideology. If you're the president right now, what are you doing to alleviate that problem? You know, the experts say we need more people down there, uh, more drones. Uh, we need to make sure we don't have children in cages and children being ripped out of their mother's arms. You don't have to play it that way. That would cost some money because uh, that's a lot more people and a lot more processing. Uh, but it would be short money compared to a 200-mile-long mile-high fence. <laughs> but what about all of the people who are there? What do you do with them? I mean, do you let them into the country? Where do they go? 
Well, that's what I say would cost the money. You'd have to make arrangements so that uh, they, they weren't uh, penned and, uh, you know, ripped apart the, what is happening now. It's a shortage of resources at the wall, uh, at, at the border. And Mr. Trump has a one-word response to anything involving, you know, South America or Mexico, which is wall. Uh, I'm saying if you're going to spend money, do what the experts say and have more people down there to process them. So I'm not saying, you know, abandon the idea of asylum, but uh, obviously uh, we got to have better facilities or you get these horror stories like you're getting right now. Shifting back here to New Hampshire, you're scheduled to attend Porkfest, the gathering of yes. the Free State Project folks and libertarians here. Doesn't this kind of um, raise an eyebrow perhaps for the moderate Republicans who you've been trying to court a little bit saying, I'm back, I'm in the Republican Party, I'm not a libertarian? Oh, no. Listen, I think the Free State is uh, great. Uh, I'm, I've been a small libertarian, a small L libertarian since I was in law school. I love this stuff. I'm going to wear a motorcycle jacket to, uh, to that, uh, that rally. And then I've got, uh, you know, the Pride Day in Portsmouth uh, tomorrow. No, this is a great weekend. Is there anything less conservative than the idea of a bunch of people getting together and moving to a place to take over its politics? Anything less conservative? That seems pretty activist. Oh, I don't know. They're expressing themselves. You know, they're not trying to take over uh, Concord with guns. Uh, it's just... Uh, a question of how they want to live their lives, and uh, it's uh, maybe it's aspirational, but uh, uh, I, I'm kind of on their side in saying they'd like less government. Matter of fact, that, that gets fairly fundamental with me. To the extent we can have less government and more personal liberties and individual rights, uh, I like that. I'm a Tenth Amendment man. The power is not expressly delegated to the federal government or reserved to the states uh, or to the people, respectively. Another way of putting that is live free or die, baby. <laughs> Are you confident you can win New Hampshire in this primary? I, I think I can win New Hampshire. It's a small state. I'm a New Hampshire type guy. I'm going fishing this afternoon. Uh, I'm at home in the woods uh, with a gun. Uh, I don't have to go buy my equipment the day before I show up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have thought for a long time that live free or die is a license plate I'd like to have. All right. Governor Bill Weld, we thank, thank you for your time. Close up. We'll see you out there on the campaign trail. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.